0: Welcome to The Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week in The Kick, highlights from this year's New York City Marathon, including a 96-year-old who made his way across the finish line. But first, my interviews with Josh Lajani and Eileen Moon. Josh and Eileen are the winners of our 2016 Cover Search. Cover Search is driven by a pretty simple idea, which is that regular runners do amazing things every day. We opened a contest in May and asked entrants to tell us about a breakthrough moment when running helped them achieve something remarkable, overcome especially long odds, or give back to their sport or their communities in a meaningful way, or ideally, all the above. More than a 1,000 readers entered, and after months of deliberation and really tough decision-making, we landed on two winners, one female and one male runner, whose drive and determination embody not only the passion they feel for the sport, but its potential for changing lives. I spoke to Josh and Eileen separately, shortly after they'd learned they would be on the December 2016 cover of Runner's World. These were insightful, funny, and heartfelt conversations.
1: We lead the pack when it comes to things that kill humans early having a heart attack and dying in your 50s is kind of like not really that big of a deal here. And it's absurd. We can do it different and still hold on to
0: our culture. We're really excited to introduce these incredible runners to our listeners and to help them tell their stories in a bigger way. Stick around and thanks for joining us. Josh Lajani used to be a big dude, a very big dude. In fact, Josh, who's from Thibodeau, Louisiana, says eating was his sport for a very long time. He eventually ballooned to over 400 pounds before he began taking small steps to turn his life around. He began by hitting the gym with his friend, and it was during one of those sessions that Josh was walking on the treadmill flipping through an issue of Runner's World. He came upon a story about how running is a great way to burn calories and fat, and Josh said something just clicked inside him that day. And shortly after reading that story, he and his workout buddy started running together. Fast forward to today, and Josh is quite literally half the man he used to be, at least physically. He's dropped more than 200 pounds. But when it comes to Josh's self-esteem and passion for running and healthy living, he's getting bigger every day. He's become a vegan, an ultramarathoner, and one of the winners of our 2016 Cover Search and Josh is an evangelist of sorts with a powerful important message for his beloved Cajun community in Louisiana. Josh, thanks for joining us on the Runners World show. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. I'm completely blown away and honored, man. This
1: is awesome.
0: <laughs> well, we were blown away by your story and and by you and how much you've changed your life and how committed you are to expanding beyond just yourself and helping people around you change their lives as well okay so you you've you've dropped 200 pounds yes sir and man you've had quite a decade i'm not sure i've ever met anyone who has gone through such a transformation in in one decade take us back to the beginning before you became a runner before you started to change your life what what was your life like then
1: my life back then was just a normal existence for us down here which is what makes it even a bigger story i think is because it's so normal that that level of unhealthy that level of obesity that level of 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 just overindulgence in in the way of consumption whether it's food or alcohol is totally like a totally a normal thing and that was my weekend existence or just weekday existence I would go and we would eat fried fish platters at restaurants for lunch and have beer with lunch and and eat or go to a steak restaurant and have a big steak and and french fries and or or a big po' boy like that was my normal eating habits throughout the day and then on the weekends it was always something extravagant like we were usually always going to go going on a on either a fishing trip or a hunting trip depending on the time of the year and then so friday was usually spent get gathering the groceries which is you know you have all of the all of the cookies and cakes and pies and breakfast stuff that you're going to stock the camp with and um, all of the whiskey and the beer and the things that you're going to snack on, on the boat. And so that was like the normal rhythm of my life was, was living that way, eating that way. And then turning it up a notch, even from my normal everyday backbeat of, of, Poor food choices, turning it up even another notch on the weekends and maybe even a few more notches on special occasions like Christmas and birthdays and or, or you know, even ironically, you know, uh, funerals, uh, graduations and christenings, whatever the case may be. And that was that was um, that's not just my existence. That's that's how that's kind of how we roll down here. Um, And and so fully participating in that uh, really sort of lent lent itself to me becoming a, a big, hefty guy on the fast track to a heart attack, which unfortunately is not an uncommon thing here at all.
0: Right. And as you told us during the judging process, there's another reason why, as you put it, being big wasn't a bad thing. No, it's another cultural thing down in your part of the country. Right. You were a football player. I'm
1: a football player. That's exactly right. So it, it, it wasn't just it was also it wasn't just the manifestation of the lifestyle. It was something that in a lot of ways I wound up manifesting on purpose because I needed the heft and the girth to be this big hulking football player on the football field and 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 that was an asset to me that was that was how I was being an athlete so it was not a bad thing at all to be big it was it was it was definitely an asset to me on the football field. It was normal when I looked around at the deer camp and the fishing camp. And even in my very own family, the patriarch of my family, my Bam Bam was about 380 my whole life, and I wanted to be just like him. So there
0: was multiple. Your Bam Bam's your grandfather. My right? Bam
1: Bam is my, yeah, my mom's dad. Correct. Uh-huh. So there were multiple factors. None of them bad things really, you know that that got that that sort of contributed to me becoming you know that that 420 ish pound guy
0: ultimately 420 pounds okay ish. so that wasn't when you were in high school right yeah Yeah. So how how big were you say your senior year in high school my when senior, you were playing football my
1: senior year in high school i was about 290 in high school okay and um and that's and that's uh and then i got recruited Um, By a small school in Arkansas. And the offensive line coach called me at home one day and asked me if I could be about 30 or 40 pounds heavier when I came to training camp. So that's, so I'm sure he meant that at least some of that should be muscle. (laughs) But, (laughs) but I, I I obliged and I was about 335 when I got to training camp. And I, that was in, as a, as a
0: college freshman. Yes,
1: as a college freshman. That's right.
0: Wow. Yep. Okay. All right. So then you you played you, but you did not play all 4 years, right? No, um. I was done in that first
1: season and I contributed really in retrospect to me being so overweight. And I was I was big, but I was also weak weaker than the other big guys. So I was and mm. that worked okay in high school, but in the NCAA it did not work well at all. So I wound up spending a lot of time bending my body in weird ways and and using my low back in ways that other guys didn't have to because they were a lot stronger in their chest and legs than I was. And so I ultimately had a low back issue that basically made me quit.
0: Okay. So you came to this school, you put on 30 or 40 pounds to play football and then You quit football. I quit. So what what happened then? How did you get from that point to 420 pounds, as you mentioned a minute ago?
1: Well, after that, I came back home. I came back to Thibodeau. I enrolled at Nichols State and proceeded to flunk out. And then I was like, well, I'll get it together next semester. And I flunked out again. And then I went on academic uh, suspension. So I couldn't go back. I couldn't enroll again for two years. And so... I went to work, became a bartender. And then now that football's not in my life, I was like, just living it up. I could spend the falls, go into the deer camps and having a good time doing that kind of thing. Uh, I did a lot of dab, I dabbled a lot more in alcohol and drugs and partying after my football career was over. During that whole time, I'm struggling with weight internally. I don't wanna be the big guy anymore. I don't have the football excuse or reason to be a big guy anymore. And, and and it and I'm trying, but I lose weight here and then I put it all back on. I lose weight with Xenadrin, with ephedra, and then I'll put it all back on because they took it off of the market. Or, you know, that's that's kind of my rhythm. That's how it was working for me. And during one of my periods where I had lost some weight, like in uh, in the early two thousands is like two thousand and three, I met my my now wife and she talked me into going back to school. And, and so I went back to school in 2007 as a 29 year old, um, freshman all over again, non-traditional freshman. And after, and, and since I had met my wife and gotten comfortable and she had made it clear to me over and over again, and it didn't matter what I looked like. Um, I slowly, but surely I probably put it, put on a hundred pounds after like in our first probably year and a half together and by that time we had saint season tickets in 06 after Katrina and we so we were doing that thing and spending a lot more time in the city and food was like now like a sport like so instead of me picking up something healthy <laughs> right I'm doing we're going to commander's palace in new orleans or reading about a new restaurant or hearing about a new restaurant on the food channel or or on the food network or whatever and deciding hey let's go check out this place let's go to let's go to you know whatever new place in the quarter or an uptown or whatever this new fancy restaurant is and so it's just living that life of really enjoying um you know the spoils of being in new orleans and in south louisiana the richness of the food that i mean i mean that we have a global draw for how we can make you know Taste buds dance, and so we were partying very regularly, and and all of that whole existence just slowly but surely packed the pounds onto me, um, and me thinking, well, I might not be physically healthy, but look, I'm finally getting my degree, I'm doing the right thing. For me, I'm learning. I'm becoming a, an educated human, and so the physical thing was kind of like on the back burner. I didn't really take issue with putting on all of that weight, and except for those secret dark moments in the in the bathroom with myself, standing in front of a mirror. But you try to suppress that stuff and not let it out because I have I'm I'm supposed to be this this big, gregarious, happy, always with a joke, fun guy who's always, you know, always cooking and gathering a party and like putting things together. And hey, y'all come to my truck for the tailgate or y'all come over. I got three or four sacks of crawfish or whatever. I was that guy.
0: So you and PJ got married in 2008. And as we say in, in the story, just to put it in context, at your wedding, you wore a suit jacket that was size 62 long. 62 and you're, long. you're a tall guy. How, t- how tall are you, John? I'm about six,
1: three and a half.
0: 6'4". Right. Mm -hmm. So size 62 jacket, pants with a waist size 54. That's right. And a shirt with a neck size of 22 inches. 22 and a half, right. 22 and a half inch neck. And you topped out, as you said, at 420 pounds in the year 2009. Yes, sir. But then what changed? Part
1: of it was me, like a mindset thing. Part of it was... My idea of what impossible meant had been basically shattered for a couple of different reasons. One, I'm married to a beautiful woman. I was always the fat guy who fell into the friend zone. And here I am married with a beautiful woman who obviously doesn't care how I look. She cares about me, my internal parts, my heart, my brain, my mind, my soul. She's she's in love with me. And so I never, I never expected that. I always dreamed of it when I was a younger guy that somebody would love me even though I'm fat. And um, here I am experiencing it in 3D. And it makes me emotional just even talking about it, but it's a reality. She's, I I thought that was impossible. Yet here I am, it's happening. Hmm. Another thing was impossible was, Josh, you're just a big dumb ex-jock coon ass who's never gonna get his college degree. So here I am um, in the beginning of 2011 on the precipice of actually doing yet another impossible thing which was earn my degree and another thing that had sort of shattered my mindset on impossibility was so i've been a saints fan since i was a toddler man and like that's where i'm from that's my like flag right the saints won a super bowl yet another impossible thing and and so That was a big shift in my mindset was like, okay, here's all these things that's impossible that are not impossible. And then so I'm like, I'm like just just on fire to be to be better. And so I was starting to uh, adjust my behavior to create this better outcome. And it was all real vague in general. It wasn't about becoming 200 pounds lighter and becoming an ultra marathoner back then. It was just about me looking better in a suit for my senior year when I knew I had this capstone course to do this big business presentation for in the fall. And here we are, February 2011. I'm very overweight. I'm very unhappy. I'm anxious about this This presentation that I have to make at the end of the year, I know I'm going to have to tuck in my shirt from the entire, you know, school to see my belly. Now I feel like, you know, when you're a fat guy and you tuck in your shirt, it's kind of like admitting that you're fat. Like it's a big deal, especially in a suit. You know, it it was a huge deal for me to to do all of that. And I was real nervous about it. So in 2011 is when I just started moving. I just started trying to move about and move more and kind of eat a little bit less that's the so the suit thing is really if you want to identify a switch um that's that's the thing that got me moving that's what got it started for me was early 2011 I didn't want to look like a big fat guy in a suit man I just didn't it was bothering me and uh everybody was 10 years younger than me and on top of it so I was very self-conscious and very self-aware of how out of place I would was gonna look, you know.
0: So when did the running
1: begin? So I I wound up losing about sixty pounds before graduation, and that was really cool. I got a lot of compliments at graduation. And so, as I'm working out and losing weight, and still going to New Orleans every weekend, I'm like I notice all of these people running up and down St. Charles Avenue on the streetcar line, and and. I know that there's this big race called the Crescent City Classic in New Orleans, and I told my workout partner in in uh, late 2011, I was like, I think I want to, because at that point I was just running like one mile after my after my weight workouts. That's all we were doing. I'd get outside and we'd run the same one mile route, and I was trying to do that mile in like 12 minutes or so. That was like to finish off my uh, to finish off my weight workout. And then we started stretching out the mileage um, because on one of these days, I was like, you know, they have this race called the Crescent City Classic. It's a 10K in New Orleans. That would be fun for us to go. And I was kind of fishing for him to show the vote of confidence that, yeah, I think you could do a 10K, Josh. Let's go for it. And he did. When I brought it up, he was like, yeah, totally. We can do it. I mean, hell, if you got to walk half of it, at least you can go and get it done, man. And so that's, that was the plan. That's what got me into running. And so, and, uh, I showed up there slightly hung over with a belly full of like ridiculous food that I had eaten the night before. And we took off and took off for the six mile run out to, uh, to city park from the French quarter. And, um, it was a miserable, it was a miserable little run for me. And when I got to the end of it, I was very disappointed that it took me like an hour and 43 minutes to do. I had to walk a big portion of it, and uh, and so so what happened was, and my wife was like, could tell that I was very upset about how long it took. She's like, hell, let's just sign up, let's do it again next year, and let's try, let's have an aiming point for under an hour next year. So we got a whole year to get under an hour. And I was like, "That's a great idea." So that's what we did. And that's really when running. That was the first time I actually started training for a thing. Was was that year following that first Crescent City Classic was uh, was me training for the next Crescent City Classic and trying to do it in under in under an hour. We worked really hard to get that sub hour effort, which we were able to do. By the way, we got it in like fifty nine fifty six was my time. But at that same uh-huh. at that same time, my wife and I had uh, had committed to go to eating clean, quote unquote, right for the forty days before uh, before the Crescent City Classic. So we did like forty days of eating clean for Lent. Okay. And um, not a religious thing. So was, what
0: does eating clean mean in New Orleans? Well, eating
1: clean, it was just <laughs> something that she had read. And for us, it meant only grass-fed beef, only um, like uh, free-range chicken, no processed food. So we removed all the processed foods so there was no nothing in boxes. Yet at the same time, what's going on, as I'm doing the eating clean thing, I uh, read this book called Born to Run. So one of my buddies... Um, he suggested I read this book called Born to Run. He's like, dude, I'm about halfway through it. It's amazing, it, and I'm thinking about you the whole time. As soon as I'm done, I'm going to give it to you. I was like, cool. So he gave me the book, and I, and I started reading that book, and I learned about Scott Jurek. Scott Jurek, for people who don't know, he's an ultra-marathoner who is a who's also vegan. He's a vegan ultra right And so I read about him in Born to Run. Not only did I learn about Scott Jurek, but I learned about this thing called ultra marathoning. I had never heard of people running further than 26.2 miles. And and so that was like, that had me completely blown away. And the fact that he did it without eating meat, Right the fact that he did it without all of the manly meat consumption that you must have to be a big, strong guy. Um, that, that was, uh, so you thought Yes, right? yeah. So that, that really like kind of piqued my interest a bit. Um, I read more about him and I was like, Oh, okay. He's just been a beast like from out the gate kind of, so maybe his diet really doesn't have much to do with it. Um, maybe he's just, he's just a beast. And so I drilled down even further into my iPad. I put in and put in Ultra, and I found this book called "Finding Ultra," written by Rich Roll. And Rich Roll's story was completely different. Rich Roll was a failed college athlete like myself, uh, a guy who fell off after after his uh, failed college athletic scholarship with drugs and alcohol like myself. He also. Uh, started eating what he called the window diet where everything he got, every he got all his nutrition from a window as he drove through on his way, either to or from work or whatever. And he got, he got overweight. And um, lo and behold in his book, when he finally did catch a grip and turn everything around and become an ultra endurance athlete, he had also become plant-based at that same time and I was like wow here's this thing he's a completely different athlete than Scott Jurek he's somebody who actually had to change and become an athlete not somebody who just kind of had always been one and he did it and he credits this plant-based diet thing so I uh I really bought in and around that same time I had sort of decided to go and run my first half marathon in October. Now I'm doing things like, you know, get experiencing my first 10 mile run, running multiple eight mile runs, six, eight, seven mile runs. And at that time, those runs were taking a very long time for me. So I'm listening to audiobooks and I'm just drilling down into all of this new nutritional information that I had never heard of before. And as I'm going on these longer and longer runs, and by the end of 2013, um, well, really by April 2013, I was completely plant based. I was in, and my weight just began to just fly off in a way that it had never done in the previous 100 pounds before. It, you know, so I had lost 100 pounds by the time I decided to to uh, a go plant based and B reach for bigger goals um in distance. And
0: what's your weight down to now, Josh? Right now I weigh um about one ninety. I'm pretty much float around one ninety. Wow, so from four hundred and twenty pounds down to one ninety. And also there are some listeners who are probably wondering, have you had any surgery of any kind? No surgery. No uh uh-uh. I, I I have this body, I did what I did to this
1: body. I'm gonna live with the repercussions of what I did to this body. So yeah.
0: Yeah. You posted something to your social media. You, we haven't talked about this yet, yeah. and I know it was a tough decision for you. T- tell me about what you posted and why you decided to do it.
1: Yeah, well, I get one of the I posted a picture of myself without a shirt after a run one morning. And I and I almost didn't do it because honestly, you know, I'm still a fat guy in a lot of ways in my mind. Like cuz when I look at myself, I'm not happy with 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 what i see when i don't have a shirt on like and so and i know people that are struggling right because i've since i've been in this like since i've been putting myself out there other heavy people have reached out to me and that seems to be like the biggest misunderstanding about me is because they see me in a racing singlet and they see my arms and they think oh my god what happened to all your skin like did you have surgery and and so there are these people who are about say 100 pounds into a 200 pound weight loss journey and they're very disgusted with themselves there's a really significant flabby phase that you go through when you when you lose a lot of weight and so there even though you lose weight there's some body you have some body image issues that you have to wrestle with and what i wanted those people to understand is i'm not i'm not what i think you probably imagine i am i am in i am still like you in a lot of ways i have a lot of like residual evidence of having been morbidly obese and i want you to see that about me i want to be transparent and and honestly it's something i'm ashamed of and so that's why i did it it wasn't just to be Awesome to people who are dealing with weight loss issues. It was also very selfish in the fact that I feel like if I, um, put it out there in the public realm and shine some light on it, maybe I'll be somewhat less ashamed of it. And it won't feel like such a secret, right? Cause I feel like I'm keeping right. a secret sometimes when people go, Oh my God, you look amazing. Well, let me put on a Speedo and walk out into the middle of the room, and let's, and let's readdress how amazing you think I look.
0: So what what you showed in your photo and what you're saying you felt ashamed about would, was just this excess skin, right, that that is just there. And, and some people elect to have surgery to have that skin removed. You've, you made a choice not to do that.
1: Yeah. It's not, it's not that I'm ashamed so much of how I look. I'm ashamed of what I did to leave these scars, right? So that's one thing. The other thing was I wanted to I wanted to be able to show people who are in that minus 100, in their 200 pound weight loss journey, that it's not gonna be as bad as you are imagining it. I'm not comfortable with myself without a shirt. However, I don't look like the weird and deflated sack that I had imagined I was going to look when I was still 100 or 200 pounds overweight, you know, and, and that's what the skin is a dynamic organism. And it will shrink up to the point to where it's not as much excess material on your body as there is excess material in your Five extra large or four extra large shirt or size 62 long jacket. If I would put on one of those old pieces of clothing, you can see the difference between extra material in my clothing and extra material in my skin. I don't think I look as bad as I used to look one. And I don't think I look as bad as I imagined I was going to look when I got rid of all of the weight. Does that make sense?
0: Well, it does, and Josh, you look great. You look great in photos. I've met you in person. I've gone running with you. You look like a strong athlete. So I want to ask you, another part of the, your story that we really responded to was after, after you transformed yourself and your own life, you didn't stop there. You, you decided that you wanted to have an impact in your community and even in your own family. So what is it that you want people that you're trying to help? What, what is it that you want them to understand or see? I would say that the first thing you need to
1: know to know is because and I've been mindset wise. Self-deprecating is easy and it's a cop out like you need to learn to love yourself. That's step one, man. So beating yourself up is such an easy way to go. Oh, I'm just a loser. I'm a big fat ass. I'll always be that way. Like that's 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 such a cop out and I see that now in retrospect. The the hard thing to do is, hey man, I love you, Josh. You're my boy. And we're going to do this thing. We're going to we're going to make the hard decisions for us. We're going to make the hard decisions to make me better because I value you, right? So that's a different that's a total shift in mindset. And if you can really harbor that type of relationship with yourself, then then that's the first domino that has to fall in massive lifestyle change.
0: So today, you ran that half marathon, you went on to run a marathon, you, your marathon PR is 324. Correct. You've run a 100 mile race. Yes, yeah, September 3rd. And you describe yourself these are your words. You describe yourself as a mostly plant-eating, community-building, coon-ass Yeah, well, the most- I mean, the transformation yeah. is incredible. And I i just want to ask you about that term, coon I mean, I, I know it's kind of controversial. So what does it mean and how are you using it?
1: It's a term of endearment here. And
0: I would also would like
1: to address something because a lot of my vegan friends were wondering about it. I'm not mostly plant-based at all. I am 1000% plant-based. Even inside of vegan eating, I am a very clean eating human. I I don't do a lot of that, that vegan junk food stuff. So anyway, but yeah, (laughs) so, so a coon ass is just, uh, you know, that's just a swamp del swamp dwelling person from the Bayou, man. There's of course you can do anything you can say any word about anybody um and depending on context and the way that it's said or used could be taken as a derogatory term or as something that's controversial or mean but uh here we just you know when somebody's a good old boy we call him that. That's a you know, that's a that's a good old coon ass right there, bro. That's a good dude. And that's that's what I mean by it. I, it's a word I'm proud to have associated with me and my last name and my accent and where I'm from. And uh, it, it's just a term of endearment.
0: And as much as anything, you're, you're trying to personify in your community that you can still be authentic. You can never forget your roots or who you are, where you're from, but you can make these changes in your life. You can become a vegan for God's sake yeah. and you can start running and become an ultra marathoner for God's sake. I mean, these are things that at one point in time were inconceivable to you and and may seem inconceivable to people who are in your life, your friends, your family, and uh, your community, right? That's and it. you're you're trying to you're trying to change their perception. As, as much as anything.
1: Absolutely, because what we do a lot of times is we tell ourselves that being a Kunas, being a Cajun, being from South Louisiana and experiencing Mardi Gras every year and, and going to the fishing camp and going to the hunting camp and all of these things... If it wouldn't be for those, then I could live a healthy life and not be part of the statistics that lead to us leading the country in heart disease, obesity, diabetes, cancer, all of these other things. Right. So I want to be and stay an authentic Kunas who lives in authentic Kunas land, yet is going to live an authentic human existence by being healthy and lean and strong and and the magnificent animal that we were meant to be. So I can do all of those things and still identify as an authentic Cajun human being. And and if I can do it, then, you know, Joe Blow from Galliano can do it. And anybody in Chag Bay or anybody in, in, in Pornichan, anybody from the Baye can get it done too. And we, not only that, we need to, we lead the pack when it comes to Things that kill humans early. And so having a heart attack and dying in 50 isn't really like just like being big and fat. Like we were talking about earlier in the conversation, having a, having a heart attack and dying in your 50s is kind of like not really that big of a deal here. And it's absurd. It's absurd. We can do it different and still hold on to our culture. And in a lot of ways, our culture that we call culture today are just things that our ancestors used to survive. And the irony is that we're using those very survival techniques developed by our ancestors, learning how to make a roux to make anything that any from possums to crawfish to whatever, learning how to make a roux to make things taste good so you can eat them and not die. Learning how to get crawfish out of the swamp, learning how to, you know, do a broucherie. So you use the whole pig and you make gratons and you cook the guts and you, make hogheads cheese. Like those survival techniques that they were using to to stay alive have been extrapolated into an, a, a celebration of those very things, right? The roos and stews and fried stuff and the and the gratons that those very things now are the things that are keeping us leading the nation in heart disease, obesity, and those things. So the irony is we like to think of ourselves as holding the torch for our ancestors when what we're really doing is using them as an excuse to overconsume and really taint or tarnish their legacy. By living in a very irresponsible way that makes us die early and makes us fat and makes us ride the cart at Walmart and drag around an oxygen tank. And, and so that's the kind of way I would like to see it flipped on its head is for, for some of us to wake up and go, oh, you know, you got a point, Josh. Let's honor our ancestors by being amazing examples of what the human form can be. Let's do that. We can still have authentic Kunas things. We can still have Mardi Gras and go and do, uh, you know, all of the festivals. We can still do all of the parties and the music. Music's a big part of our life here. We can still do tons of authentic Cajun, South Louisiana and Acadian Kunas things, yet still be extremely healthy. We could lead the nation in the other way instead of leading it in the back in, 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 in the wrong way. Let's how about let's lead the nation in the amount of change. I think that would be a really cool no. thing to be, to be a part of. Right.
0: Yeah. All right, Josh, in closing, I want to go back to that phone conversation that we had a week ago. Oh God. It was really emotional for you. Yes. How come? What, how come? What is, what is this? cover search mean to you it's something that it it blows my mind I've overused the word
1: surreal in in my entire like journey but to think back like when I and I get I'm getting emotional just thinking about it I'm sorry but to think back to that day where I read an article about how running is a great workout to try to lose body fat right? To try to lose body fat. And I think back to that day, and I think about from the time that I read that article, and I can't even remember exactly when, but I just read that article and it stuck with my mind because it made good sense. And then all of the stuff that's happened to me in the interim between then and now, when I try to think about it, it's like a sensory overload like I I can't I, I go to the people who have contacted me because they've lost 100 pounds because they know my story the people who have changed their lives and gotten off of blood pressure medicine and and gotten rid of heart disease and lost 160 pounds like my grandfather because of my story not because of me but because of my story and to think. That now, that magazine that kind of planted that seed long ago, to think that I'm going to be on the cover of that, is something that I I don't even know how to put it into words, Dave. Like, I don't know how to say it properly. All that wants to happen is my brain sort of quivers, and I go into like a cry. Because it's just Hmm. so profound that I don't really know how to compute it properly. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if that makes sense to you or not. And I know that this will just help even more people know about what's possible in your life. Right? And that warms me.
0: And you don't want to stop there. You want... You're not ashamed to say it. You want to change the world. I absolutely want to change the world. I don't think that should be taken as such a grandiose,
1: hyperbolic thing to say. I think it's something that has been done throughout humankind, throughout our history. People change the world regularly, and I want to be part of
0: that. To learn more about Josh and to see his very genuine, very heartfelt, very emotional reaction when I called to tell him he'd won our cover search, go to runnersworld.com audio. The female winner of our cover search is Eileen Moon. We were lucky to nail down Eileen for this interview because she is an insanely busy person. She's the associate principal cellist for the New York Philharmonic. She's the founder of a music series in Warwick, New York, where she lives with her husband, Phil Myers, the Philharmonic's principal French horn player. As the owner of a lot of dogs, we'll get to that, I promise, she is an animal lover and co-founder of Friends of Warwick Valley Humane Society. She's also a breast cancer survivor. And it was that last piece of her identity that led her to become a marathoner on top of everything else. Well, Eileen, congratulations on being one of the winners of our cover search and landing on the cover of Runner's World. I I have to ask you, what does this mean for you?
2: I I still haven't processed the fact that this has happened. <laughs> I'm really just, every minute, I spend about 45 seconds thinking about how this all came to be <laughs> really I mean it, it the the emotion that I feel m- most of all is just absolute gratitude um, for all of the people and events that have that have led to this and um, most notably um, ironically what what was the subject of my story uh, about my so my breakthrough and running yeah. story so
0: what was your breakthrough moment?
2: my breakthrough moment um, Everything was going hunky-dory. I mean, a great life, great job. And I went in for my first mammogram thinking, okay, this is a novelty. I'm going to do it because everyone else does it when they're 40. And found out very quickly in just a few days that I was going to go in for x-rays and and have a lumpectomy. And and I thought, wait a minute, what just happened? Um, So they found a lump in my breast, and they said that it was malignant, that I needed to... um, have a lumpectomy, have my lymph nodes tested, um, and all in the course of two or three days. And after I had my surgery, um, it was it was pretty tough. It was pretty, especially as a cellist. It was you know, and of course everything was in my right on my right side. So, you can imagine how that felt picking up the bow. There hmm. was n- none of that was happening. So a few months after right. after the surgery, luckily, I mean, it's, as it turned out, I ended up having surgery right before um, our summer break, which is typically when the orchestra has a you know month or two off. But then I started radiation in September of that year, of 2010. Um, and radiation's pretty tiring. Um, and so it it knocked me out a little bit. Um, I ended up having to go in for about eight weeks, all told. So it took a few months to go back to work. and And it was okay. I was tired. I felt like I needed to be more efficient with my, the way I use my time. And, um, I, you know, I, I did the same sort of dabbling in running that I had up until that point, you know, I did some races and I, I felt like I was getting a little bit stronger. Um, and then a couple of years later, I, I started developing a lot of pain in my shoulders and it really got mm. to a pr- pretty dramatic point. So almost exactly 2 years after my uh breast cancer surgery I ended up having two shoulder sh- surgeries. <laughs> and that was really tough for me to accept because it had already been a pretty bumpy ride and um I, the the prospect of not really being able to move again really um was hard for me to accept uh, cuz here I was in my early 40s and I thought is this is this really what it's going to be like is is this what I'm up against
0: and did you have to stop running during that time too eileen
2: yeah yeah yeah. i couldn't i couldn't uh i was like a marionette you know i I really just couldn't move my my arms at all Mm. so after for a month after my first surgery i had very limited range in my arm and then i had my left shoulder surgery a month later same thing so it was really 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 tough um Actually, I, I became a master of floor mopping in my house because I, <laughs> I found that that was a really good way to start moving my arms again. <laughs> so that was fun. And then um, I just started walking. I would, take, I would actually go, when my husband would go into work, I would go with him. And during the re- d- rehearsals, I would just sort of walk around Central Park and try and act and look normal, which was really hard because it, it, it my arms were so stiff. I thought, this is going to be a long time. So I have a choice. I can sit here and I can pretend that I'm enjoying not going to work, which was not the case. Or I could really try and do something. I mean, let's, you know, hey, this is this is an opportunity for me to try and um, um, teach myself something, get involved in whatever it was. And, and so that's exactly what I did. But I also became very involved in my community here in Warwick. Um, became very friendly with... Um, uh, good friend of mine now, who who was one of my vets here. And we formed um, what is called Friends of Warwick Valley Humane Society, whose, whose aim was to produce concerts, lectures, community-type events, and raise money for our local shelter. So that was one thing.
0: And w- we should just say that you are not only an animal lover, but also... Th- uh, the the owner of how many dogs?
2: Six dogs. <laughs> it's really it's funny. It's just such a family for us at this point. We're so used to having them around, and and they really kind of are the, their own society. You know. Yeah. <laughs> um. So it's it's pretty amazing. And so
0: sometimes you um, walk five dogs or six dogs, and and do you run with all the dogs as well? They're
2: not. They are not running. They're, not they're, running they're dogs. sniffing dogs. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, a couple of them are actually. Unfortunately the the most the runningest dog that I have has just gone blind. So that's not that's too bad, but that's okay. Um so we so what I did was I bought this really, really fancy um running stroller. It, it's a dog stroller. And um see it's a jogging stroller, so I haven't taken it out for a run yet, but I have a feeling that, that they're really gonna like it. Well, I've we've I've done it in my driveway. I've like walked them up and down the driveway. And um they really dig having the, the air go through their hair without them having to exert any energy
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you put, I think i'd like that too actually you put all six in the one stroller
2: yeah the, uh, well there's a little bit of you know growling that goes on at first everybody wants their own spot but but once we start moving it's pretty fascinating for them yeah so just have to keep moving um so, so, yeah, I mean, I have a huge, huge passion for um, animal welfare. So that's one of my huge passions. And, of course, my other passion is music.
0: You, d- you thought about running in a different way as well. You, you, you were a runner before you had your diagnosis. You had to take a fair amount of time off to recover from surgery and radiation and then another round of surgeries. But when all that was, was over... Why did you return to running? What did you miss about it?
2: Easy, easy question to answer. It was it was like this um magnet. It's just the feeling of well particularly at a, at a race when you when there are hundreds and even thousands of people that are all there for the, for exactly the same thing and you may have nothing in common with them but all of a sudden you're all part of this big family, and that was what I missed. I really craved it, and I remember that my husband said to me, he said he encouraged me to do it because, I, I, you know, there was a time when I thought I, I feel so weak and, and it's going to take me a while to get back into it, and, of course, that's true. It took me a while to get back into playing the cello as well. But for running, it really ended up becoming my survival um, and my return back to healthy living. And so I became really focused on trying to become a better and stronger runner. But I decided that my big goal was gonna be, I really wanted to run a marathon. And that was something that I thought was an unattainable goal. Hmm. Absolutely impossible for me. Um, Cause that's a lot of miles. Yeah. My first marathon was Santa Rosa in California. And I loved it because it's wine country. It's like where I grew up. It, it, was, it was absolutely perfect for my first marathon. But they had an earthquake that year. Yeah. So there was an earthquake that morning. I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to die in Santa Rosa and I will never run my first marathon. That's what I was thinking. (laughs) But um, so then I finished it and and that was fine. My second marathon was only like a month and a half later. Um, I was very ambitious by that point. I just, you know, I was really pushing my body to its limits. And I ran the Hamiltonian marathon, which is here in Goshen, New York. And it was right when the colors were changing. It was so beautiful. I must say that that was probably one of the most beautiful marathons that I've run. I've run probably almost a dozen by now, Um, and then New York was. I've always heard so many stories about New York, um, and it was pretty much everything I had heard. Um, The spectators were uh, uh, unimaginable. I mean, you just you know, there's you. I mean, it they don't exist like that anywhere else. I don't think. But the one thing that makes it every every race similar is the. Joyfulness that you feel from from everybody around you, yeah. Um, and I really, I really, I really love that. I, I it's very infectious for me, um, and it it really does stay with me. And so and it's almost like a drug. I just want I just want more, and I just can't wait for the next time.
0: And how does that energy and sense of camaraderie that you feel in races compare to being in the New York Philharmonic?
2: It, it is, it is similar to being in the Philharmonic, um, in, in a big orchestra like ours, where we have a little bit more, over a hundred people, um, and we travel together, we rehearse every day, we play concerts, um, we have run out concerts, play small chamber groups. And so you really feel like you are getting to know people, not just as a ov- overall group or not just in your particular section, in my case, the cello section, um, but you can play chamber music with them and you sort of learn a little bit more intimately about how people's minds work and and what motivates them so th- there's just a little bit of a different kind of personality and character not just because of the different music that we play but also because we've got a different conductor on stage usually maybe a different soloist sometimes um we have diff- different players playing with us and so and that changes um the dynamic and yet The same feeling is always there, which is we're here, we're rehearsing, we're performing. The the end result needs to be our best effort. The one similarity that I would definitely make, though, um, is a little bit broader in that the preparation for races and the sort of organization that you need to have leading up to a race is very, very similar to preparing for a concert, preparing for an audition, preparing at least the way I... Um, function when I'm have a concert on the horizon or a race is I sort of work backwards and I think, okay, this is the date. Um, what do I want to do in the week leading up to it? How do I want to prepare before that? What other things do I have going on that I need to adjust or that I have to work around in order to, to make this happen? And if so, how is that going to affect my preparation? Um, do I need to wake up earlier? Do I need to, um, do a little bit less of of some other activity it is in its own way a sort of zone that you have to enter um especially if you take what you do seriously so music is my life it, it's my livelihood so i put 120 150 200% into what needs to, to get done um the only difference with running is i'm not paid mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet but, the, you know, the, the, the other side of that is that it just makes you feel so good. You know, you don't need to get paid to feel that good. Wow. You know? um,
0: Do you go over music pieces that you're learning when you're running? Does running help you learn them or internalize them in a, in a way that's different from when absolutely. you're driving or walking the dogs or washing the dishes?
2: Very much so. Yeah, because there's something, you know, when you're going at a certain clip, when you're when you're running, for me it provides an atmosphere where i can just think about a passage or an issue um and it all of a sudden you know if you know on a good day i'll i'll think of a different way that i can approach like a phrase i know that sounds kind of cliche maybe to a musician if they hear that but it's really true um so if i want to understand a phrase better uh, I'm not sure that the way I'm doing it is effective, that it's communicating um, what I think the composer wants. Then, you know, thinking about it while I'm running, there's, there's nothing better than that because cause you've got time and, and you, can, you can play it as slow or as fast in your mind as you want. Um, and also, there's no distractions, you know, no phone calls, no um, dogs, No, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a miracle drug.
0: One of your colleagues, Carter Bray, was actually in Runner's World many, many years ago. He was on our back page, <laughs> I'm a Runner, in 2005, the August 2005 issue. He, he sits right, right He sits right next to you. Is that right? In the Philharmonic? He's
2: my stand partner. He's your He's, stand the, mate. he's the principal. Yeah.
0: I love that. I he's... love that in this little corner of the world, in this piece of culture in New York City, there are two marathoners standing right next to each other. And there's a little bit of a running community within the New York Philharmonic, right?
2: There sure is, yeah. A growing community. In fact, just today, our our principal trumpet player got tenure in the orchestra, um, Chris Martin, and he is a marathoner as well. So I can't wait to start, you know, get getting in some runs with him as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I love sitting next to Carter because you know we we can talk about like all of the things that you don't really like to talk about sometimes to people who don't know about things that happen during a long-distance race. Um, <laughs> and, and we've gone on a couple of runs together when we've been on, on tours. And just recently, we went on, on, on a run just a few cellists. There, there are a number of cellists in the orchestra, actually, that are runners. And um, we've, we've vowed that we're going to be much more diligent about going on runs. Maybe, I don't know about so much in, in New York City. It's hard because we all live in different places. But definitely on tours. Um it's it's so much fun and it's a great way to sort of, you know, relax um with with colleagues in a in a totally different mode. I, I have to give a shout out to my first running partners who were the, the the guys who really nurtured me into um this sport and they're two horn players in the orchestra, Al Spanger and Howard Wall. Um they They're diehard runners. They go out every day on tour, every day. I don't think they take a day off. And um, so I asked them if I could tag along with them, and um, they were so patient with me. I mean, they were really amazing, um, uh, an amazing support group. And to this day, I'm grateful to them for their patience.
0: Does running make you a better musician?
2: I think so definitely. I mean, it, it, in a number of different ways. I mean, everybody talks about those endorphins and everything, but I, I, there's a really calming, um, aspect to it. You know, um, there's, there's just a wonderfulness that you feel when you're out in the world and you've challenged yourself. You've met that challenge. You've figured out a way to, um, succeed. So how do you succeed on a Hill? Some days you're faster. Some days you have to walk it. And, um, so what running has done for me, just as a, as a person and a, as a musician also, is that it's kind of opened my eyes to accepting who and what I am and what my limitations are, what my strengths are, what my limitations are, and how to improve. Um, and improvement uh, happens on in so many different ways, on so many different levels, and it changes every hour. Um hmm. But there is a certain amount of discipline that you really have to allow yourself to impose on yourself. I'm always trying to improve the way I run a you know a a usual course for myself. I'm always trying to I'm always trying to plan something and and maybe beat my time a little bit um same and the same thing goes with music as musicians um, a lot of us start from a very young age, and you know, it's it, it, it can be very competitive, depending on what your upbringing is um, or where you go to school, and so what ends up happening as is from a young age, the the quest for perfection, the quest for always being better, and maybe winning competitions and getting into this and getting into that festival or whatever, creates um, a a a, a um, sort of a self-critical. Um, cloud sometimes that can get pretty dark um, mm. if if you if you don't keep it in check a little bit I think that it's pretty common to find um, a really high level musician um, that is always I mean to put it in a positive light is always aiming to improve but what happens maybe in the depths of your mind is I'm not good enough or Or that can easily creep in. I'm not something enough. I'm not fast enough. You know, my sound isn't beautiful enough. And um, so I know that I've fallen into a lot of moments where if I'm preparing for an audition or if I'm preparing for a concert um, and I want to be on a higher level um, that I get really fixated on one issue and I can't let it go. With running, I I I, I just I have so many things that I want to improve at. I wish I had more time, but with the time that I have, I'm always trying to make tiny little improvements. And so what that's taught me is that I can do the same on the instrument. I mean, um, even at a high level of playing with the greatest players surrounding me in my orchestra, there are always ways to look at a goal, uh, whether it is playing this passage a little better, whether it's, um, learning a new piece of music and be creative about how you're going to reach that goal
0: well, so let me just ask you after six years after your diagnosis, how is your health?
2: My health is really good my- health, I just had a mammogram a few weeks ago and and everything came out great so um I feel you know and I don't have to have um two mammograms a year. I'm just back to the annual ones and what I would love to come of this, I'm and I'm really, really very sincere, is that I that I, I just would like to have a positive effect on I mean it's it's my it's just my way in life. I like to have a positive effect on people. Um and I hope that this is a conduit for that, uh because I think that life is a miraculous thing that um and it doesn't a, a wonderful life doesn't just happen to people who happen to be in the right place at the right time or who grew up in a certain way. You can make your life that way.
0: This is Eileen Ancello performing the second movement of Dvorak's American String Quartet with Philharmonic violinists, former concertmaster Glenn Dichterow, and acting principal second violin group Lisa Kim and violist Karen Dreyfus. You can read more about Eileen and watch the video where she finds out she was one of the cover search winners at runnersworld.com audio. By the way, a big thanks to Toyota and to Brooks Running for sponsoring this year's cover search. In fact, Jim Weber, the CEO of Brooks Running, was one of the judges of the search, along with executive editor Tish Hamilton, chief running officer Bart Yasso, and WABC's marathon running meteorologist Amy Freeze. Thanks, guys. We've got another inspiring story about a runner who lost a massive amount of weight on our other podcast, Human Race. Don Bravo lost more than 150 pounds after he started running, and he started getting competitive with an unusual foe. I take
1: great joy in looking at the sunrise and saying to the sun, I beat you. I was up before you were. I have
0: beat you. Trust me, you are going to want to meet this guy, and he's going to change the way you think about your own running challenges. You won't want to miss it. And now it's time for The Kick with producer Kit Fox
3: and online editor Chris Michael. Well, it's been a crazy busy week this week. Chris, what's going on?
4: Well, uh, you know, the one story I think that is all the stories for this week was the New York City Marathon, which was last Sunday. It was the largest marathon. Set a record. There were over 51,000 finishers. And Kit, you
3: were actually there. I okay. was boots uh, on the ground in the Big Apple. So tell us, tell us uh, a little bit about
4: who won the
3: race this this year. Yeah, so um, it was it was a pretty exciting race on the men's side. Um, Eritrea's Gebra Gebreselassie mm-hmm. won. Pretty incredible performance. There's a couple things I want to mention. First of all, he is the uh, youngest winner of the New York City City Marathon ever. Wow, twenty years old. He ran in two hours, seven minutes, and 51 seconds, which is um, the fifth fastest time ever run in New York. So, just an amazing performance by him. And, you know, I mean, he is too young to celebrate with a beer. Might be a bummer, but also very impressive.
4: (laughs) It is super impressive. And, you know, I got to watch it from home. I was working uh, from our Emmaus office. And, you know, one of the things that really struck me was just his sportsmanship. Uh, He turned around. Uh, as soon as he finished and and ran back and high-fived Lucas Rodic, who came in second, I thought that was just a really noble move. And now, Kit, uh, an American also made the podium this year. Tell us about that.
3: Yeah, Abdi Abderrahman had pretty much the best race of his life, came out of nowhere. He's 39 years old, and he ran a 2-hour, 11-minute, and 23-second marathon. Um, he was the top American. Um, we, you know, had a couple disappointing performances. Dathan Ritzenheim, who was a, an American favorite actually dropped out, but congrats to Abdi, taken third. That is amazing. And, and how did the women do this year? On the women's side, it was, uh, you know, old face kind of New York city marathon legend at this point, Mary Katani from Kenya. This is her third, uh, New York city marathon win in a row. And she... Absolutely dominated the race. Um, you know, pulled away. By the time she reached the 59th Street Bridge, I think she had about a minute lead on the rest of the field. Um, yeah, it was her race the whole way. She finished in two hours, 24 minutes, and 26 seconds, which is more than three minutes faster than second place finisher Sally Kipiego of Kenya.
4: That is amazing.
3: Just pure domination.
4: And again, we had a, an American take the podium this year.
3: This was this was outstanding. Uh, Molly Huddle making her marathon debut. You know, she's pretty much dominated every distance from the five k on up. Mm-hmm. Um, had an amazing Olympics this uh, past summer. She came in third in her first marathon. Um, She ran a 2.28.13.
4: And this was the sixth fastest American debut, is that right?
3: Yeah, and we were expecting great things from her, and um, she's got a really exciting marathoning future. But like any first-time marathoner, she learned a few things. Here's what she had to say at the end of the race.
4: I was kind of just surviving at the end and looking ahead and really trying to catch Joyce and trying to catch Sally but you were too fast but um, I felt like I held it together like I was I didn't feel like I hit a solid wall per se Um, so I'm happy with that I'm not really sure marathon wise what would be next I plan to go back to the track next spring so probably just um, a regular track season and um, I'm not sure if I'll do a race and a half or anything in March. We'll see how I recover. Congrats to Molly Huddle and also to Abdi. Um, we also had a first-time marathoner who we featured in last week's show, Theo Rossi. He finished his first marathon. He came in quite fast with a 3:35:48 finish. So
3: that's great for Theo. I know he had been training really hard when I spoke with him. He was saying, you know, some days was pulling in two-a-day workouts, so it seems like his training paid off. Congrats to him. Now, we talked about some of the fastest people, but you actually stuck
4: around for some of the slowest runners to come in. You were there late into the night on Sunday, and um, there was one uh, story that really did well with our social audience that uh, I'm just fascinated by. I I really want to hear you talk about Jonathan Mendez.
3: Yeah, so the great thing about the New York City Marathon is, even though the traffic resumes and some of the barriers have been taken away, they keep the finish line open well past dark. Mm -hmm. And so that allowed um, 96-year-old Jonathan Mendez to finish and get his medal. Wow. And this guy is just incredible. I mean, on the list of achievements, the marathon finish is probably lower down because he is a World War II Marine that flew over 100 missions in the Pacific also flew in the Korean War. He trained John Glenn and Ted Williams. Um, You know, he's canoed all over the world, skied all over the world. This man is just incredible. And it took him 11 hours and 23 minutes out on that course to reach the finish line, and he did it. And so as I was, I got to walk like the last quarter mile or so with him, Mm -hmm. Um, he kind of proffered some life advice that I think we could all use.
1: I'd say everything in moderation, nothing to excess. Don't do anything that's watching to hurt you, but go to your full capacity, you, you, whatever what you're capable of doing,
4: uh, without hurting yourself. That's the challenge. So, Kit, you were with him for his final sprint.
3: Yeah, uh, this is how he described it. <laughs> I wouldn't exactly call it a sprint. It's <laughs> <laughs> the final crawl,
4: <laughs> <laughs> probably on hands and knees. <laughs> Uh, one of my favorite parts of this story is how Mendez finished the race.
3: Yeah, his his guides, uh, they carried three miniature bottles of Johnny Walker Black Label. So Mendez crosses the finish line. He has to go to the medical tent. He's fine, just wants to lie down. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the nurse was like, do you need some hot chocolate, some water? No, 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 no. He wanted his scotch. So they handed him his miniature bottle, and he just, you know— Took his shot of scotch, was all smiles. That's how I
4: hope to finish my race when I'm 96.
3: Exactly. The race of life, maybe. <laughs>
4: <laughs> so if you want to see the video of Jonathan Mendez and see more about this, you can always check it out on our show page, runnersworld.com audio.
3: So after nine decades of life, Mendez has not stopped running, being active. And we actually published a story this week that says why you shouldn't stop running.
4: Right. Well, I mean, you think about uh, not running being bad for your body, but it turns out that actually running has a lot of very positive effects on your brain, which disappear if you stop for even a short period of time. Um, It turns out uh, there's a study in the New England Journal of Medicine that shows that your mood may plummet. Um, Exercise uh, helps protect your brain from stress-induced depression there was a study from the University of Maryland that shows that even a 10 day break in exercise um, may result in uh, less blood flow to your brain, resulting in uh, a worse memory. The one that I think I wish that I had known when I was in college is that even short bursts of exercise can lead to an immediate boost in concentration. So if you were cramming for that last minute test, uh, go out and run a couple laps on the track first. It may actually. Happen. Sorry,
3: I really wasn't paying attention because I. I haven't run in a couple days. What was that?
4: Let's get back on the track, and I'll tell you again.
3: (laughs) Okay. I mean, I was busy this week, and so I didn't get a chance to run. I understand. Uh, Mm. It happens, but uh, don't let that stop
4: you from going out for a run this afternoon at lunch.
3: But I also think another key to life that we've learned this week is that we should be taking more shots of scotch. So, indeed. Let's go do that right now. All
4: right. Cheers.
3: Cheers.
0: That's it for this week's show. Thanks, as always, for your ratings and reviews of the podcast. We read them all. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World, and this week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, Brian Dalek, and Mervin Deganos. Be sure to join us next week for an interview with Carl Meltzer. Carl recently broke the Appalachian Trail through hike speed record. He broke it by mere hours, which shows just how brutal the challenge is.
3: Having to know that you have to go again eight hours after you go to bed, that's hard. 4.30, that alarm would ring every morning, and then off I'd go. And the walking part was easy. Not easy, but it's mentally it's a
0: lot easier than getting up out of bed in the morning. That's, that's the hardest part. You won't want to miss it. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.